Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 82. Last week, I covered the mercy seat and cherubim, with the seat being part of the Ark of the Covenant, and cherubim as the second highest ranked angels, and also depicted on the Ark. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the next artifact found in Exodus chapter 25. And with that, let's get started. After the Ark is the table for the bread of the presence, which just doesn't get nearly the attention of the Ark, but deserves at least a little coverage. Sometimes it's just referred to as the showbread or the table of showbread. Whichever, it refers to either cakes or loaves of bread always present on a specially dedicated table in the mobile tabernacle, then in the temple in Jerusalem. These were one of several offerings to God in that holy space. It was called the table of the bread of presence since God, as seen in the chapter, required that the bread always be on the table in the presence of him. The chapter also provides some detail about the table, acacia wood covered in gold, its dimensions, how it was to be carried by gold-covered acacia wood poles, plates and dishes for incense, flagons and bowls for drink offerings, the latter few pieces all from solid gold, and a flagon is simply a large handled container from which a drink is poured. In my neck of the woods, we call it a pitcher. While it's not explicitly mentioned, the presence of these items on the table suggests that not only bread was placed there, but also drink offerings. The table was located in the northern part of the sanctuary, opposite the menorah, with the altar of incense in between them. The Septuagint translation describes the table as being of solid gold, but the Masoretic text says that it was made from acacia wood, and only covered with pure gold, with a gold border around the top. The table was two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. This is about three feet long, 18 inches wide, and 24 inches tall, or 91 centimeters long, 26 centimeters wide, and 69 centimeters tall, likely smaller than you envisioned certainly smaller than I did. Some later rabbinic sources claim slightly different table dimensions, but there's no need to wade in what is largely a pedantic debate, especially from the view of Christianity, where the table is of primarily historical significance. The table's feet are described as having a ring-like enclosure to which four gold rings were fastened, so that the gold-covered acacia wood pole carrying rods could be passed through the rings and used to make the table portable. This, of course, similar to the ark and many of the other vessels in the tabernacle. When the table was being carried, it was covered with a purple cloth. The loaves and the vessels would be placed on the cloth. Then another cloth, this one scarlet, would be placed over it with a fine animal hide being added on top of that. In the portable desert tabernacle, there was only one table. Later, when the permanent temple, in this case the one Solomon had built in Jerusalem, as described in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, when it was built, 
there were ten tables for the bread in the temple. Other passages in both the Old and New Testaments give some of the history and tradition around this sacrament. Leviticus chapter 24 provides a great deal of detail concerning the bread that was placed on the table and who it was for. From the New Revised Standard Version, You should take choice flour and bake twelve loaves of it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall place them in two rows, six in a row, on the table of pure gold. You shall put pure frankincense with each row to be a token offering for the bread, as an offering by fire to the Lord. Each Sabbath day Aaron shall set them in order before the Lord regularly, as a commitment of the people of Israel, as a covenant forever. They shall be for Aaron and his descendants, who shall eat them in a holy place, for they are most holy portions for him from the offerings by fire to the Lord a perpetual dew, end quote. Literally, bread placed in the same room as the ark, ready for God's consumption for when he chose to make an appearance. But not that he needed the bread, but the effort to make and bake the bread was a sign of the Israelites' obedience to him, an acknowledgement of the covenant between God and them. Of course, I can't present that passage without at least some unit of measure conversions, at least an attempt. First, two-tenths of an ephah. An ephah was close to what we would consider a dry bushel. But unless you grew up in an agricultural environment, aka on a farm, which is pretty rare in our modern society, that doesn't really help. A dry bushel is about the volume of 10 U.S. gallons, or 35 liters, at least close enough. So, two-tenths of this would be about two gallons, or seven liters. And, in the U.S., the usual bread loaf pan is nine by five by two and a half inches. I'll spare you the metric equivalent, as that's not the point. The overriding attribute is that the loaf in the passage is about twice as large as what we think of. I did run across a couple of sources that assert the loaves were three times larger than what we are used to. Perhaps. The precise size shouldn't matter terribly, and there were an even dozen, not a baker's dozen. Either on top or beside the bread was frankincense, some sources claiming the essential oil was of a pure variety, and other sources saying it was mixed with salt. The bread loaves were to be made every Sabbath, so 12 large loaves every seven days. After display, they were for the consumption of Aaron and the other Levite priests. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, we learn a bit more detail about the preparation of the bread. Specifically, the Kohathites were members of the Levites who were charged as bakers. More specifically, the Kohathites were one of the three families of Levites. The other two were the Gershonites and the Mirorites. The Kohathites are thought to be descended from Kohath, a son of Levi, and they were not only charged with baking the bread, but also the care of the other vessels and objects within the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, the menorah, the table of showbread, and everything else. We're also told in 1 Chronicles that the cakes were flat. 
Some had suggested that the actual recipe was a guarded secret, and this is why the task was given to a specific family. Leavening was prohibited from the altar, which may be why a separate table was necessary, but the prohibition on leavening was perhaps for the entire sanctuary, so the bread may have been unleavened. The overall theme, like I've mentioned with so many topics, is that we don't really know. The cakes were to be left on the table for a week, replaced with new ones on every Sabbath. It's thought that the priest would only eat the bread after it had been removed from the table, so potentially after it had turned stale. And when these were eaten, they had to be consumed in a holy place, since the bread was still holy, just like mentioned in the passage. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, we see where David, when fleeing from King Saul, requested five loaves from the table from the priest Ahimelech. After the priest was assured that David's men were unblemished, he removed five loaves from the table and gave them to David. The story is also referenced in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus used it to rebuke the pestering Pharisees. Compared to other tabernacle artifacts, there aren't many details outside of a few Old Testament passages concerning the table or the bread. Fortunately, later writers had more to say. Josephus, the first century AD Jewish Roman historian, wrote that the cakes, that's how he described them, were unleavened and were baked on the Friday before the Sabbath. They had to be baked a day early because the biblical regulations prohibited any sort of work on the Sabbath. The bread is also mentioned in the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish writings that formed the first part of the Talmud. In the Mishnah, we're told that the loaves were kneaded separately, but baked in pairs. The bread molds, think bread pans, not moldy bread, were actually of three different molds, all of the same style. One was used while the loaves were just dough, another while the bread was being baked in the oven, and a third after baking, probably for cooling. All of this done to protect the shape of the loaf. I really don't understand why not keep it in the same pan throughout the whole process, but I've never baked bread in a stone oven, or hearth, or over a campfire. I'm sure they had valid reasons. The pans were made from gold, which seems like an interesting choice given how soft the metal is. But when the instructions were given, the area was just on the verge of the Iron Age, so iron was not a likely choice. I would lean towards copper, but since everything else was gold, as requested by God, then maybe it was the obvious choice. The Mishnah describes the loaves as being ten etzba long, five etzba wide, with realms, sometimes translated as horns, that were seven etzba long. And you should know by now what's coming next. Unit conversion. An etzba was the smallest unit of length or distance in the ancient Hebrew measuring system. The word can be translated to either finger width or thumb width, probably somewhere close to an inch or around two centimeters. This would mean the loaves were about 10 inches long by 5 inches wide. Your guess is likely just as good as mine on how tall. 
And my guess, based on baking experience and the need for symmetry, is that they were five inches tall. I'm also factoring in how much flour was used and assuming no leavening. And that would make for a really dense cake, which should also keep it fresh for a week, especially in that dry climate. As for the horns, they would be about seven inches, but I don't really know what to make of a cake with horns. Maybe that's the height. In metric, let's just say they would have been about 10 centimeters long by 10 centimeters high by 10 centimeters tall. The horns would be about 14 centimeters. Moses ben Maimon, a 12th century AD Jewish-Spanish writer, gave the same numerical measurements, but instead of using etzbuz, he used the tefa, which is a palm width, and that makes the cakes much larger. Assuming a palm is about 3 inches or just under 8 centimeters, so the loaves would have been 30 inches long by 15 inches wide and 15 inches tall, but in this case, that would be way too tall given the other dimensions to bake correctly. So, they would have likely been flatter. This would have been roughly, well, really roughly, similar to the dimensions of a full sheet cake, at least in the U.S. Metric measurements would be about 80 centimeters long by 40 centimeters wide, and I still don't know what to make of the horns, let alone how to bake them. Other historic Jewish writers tell us that the kneading of the dough was done outside of the sanctuary, but the baking was done inside. After it was baked, it needed to be placed in the tabernacle. To do this, according to the Mishnah, two priests would enter the sanctuary ahead of another four, who were carrying the replacement bread. The first two, the ones without any bread, would go to the southern end of the table, while those with the new bread would go to the northern end. The two would remove the old bread from the table, while the four would replace it with new bread. The whole ceremony was designed so that the bread was always present. Josephus wrote that the cakes were placed in two equal piles instead of on rows. The Mishnah described the assembly the same, but it added the detail of hollow golden tubes to carry air between the bread, along with two golden fort-shaped supports attached to the table, each one to hold up a stack of bread. Josephus also wrote that the frankincense was placed in two golden cups, one on top of each stack. The Mishnah claimed that a handful of incense was placed in each cup, while the two sefta claimed that the cups, known as bezikin, had flat bottoms and realms so that they could be placed on the table. The two sefta is a compilation of the Jewish oral law from the late 2nd century AD, from the same period as the Mishnah. There's also a description on how the priest replaced the cups of incense found on the tables. Once the week-old bread was out of the room, it was taken to a golden table in the temple's hall. Then the old incense was burned. After that was complete, the bread was divided. The high priest, in the beginning Aaron, would get five of the twelve loaves, and the remaining seven were divided amongst the priests who had been on duty over the last week. At least this was the process during a normal week. Holidays were different, like the Day of Atonement. On these days, the old bread would not be divided until the evening, 
other societies in that place and time also made similar offerings to their deities. In Babylon, they offered their idols a number of different cakes and breads. This is actually mentioned in the 14th chapter of Daniel, sometimes referred to as Bel and the Dragon. The story is largely unknown to Protestants, as this part of Daniel is considered apocryphal to adherents. It was rejected by Rabbinic Judaism, but is viewed as canonical by both Catholic and Orthodox Christians. In this story, the Babylonians had an idol called Bel, and every day they provided for it twelve bushels of choice flour and forty sheep with six measures of wine, which was slightly more than fifty gallons every day. And every night, the statue idol of Bel would allegedly consume the whole lot until Daniel proved to the Persian king Cyrus that it was the priest and their families that were actually eating and drinking the offering. And with that, they were, um, dispatched. Permanently dispatched. Other sources have both the Babylonians and Assyrians laying out a dozen or so cakes and loaves, or in some cases, a multiple of twelve cakes and loaves. And like the story of the Babylonian deity Bel, these were generally done in front of idols, primarily statues, thought to either represent or be the actual deity. The Babylonian cakes are thought to have been sweet, which likely meant they were also unleavened, like those made for the tabernacle. In either 168 or 167 BC, the Greek Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes plundered the second temple, including the table of showbread, not long after that, Judas Maccabeus had a replacement table installed. This can be found in the book of Maccabees, which, similar to Bell and the Dragon, is held as canonical by some parts of Christianity, just not Protestants. In the outside historical record, a carving of the table can be found on the Arch of Titus, located between the Forum and the Colosseum in Rome. The arch was built around 71 AD, and included scenes from the defeat of the Jews in Jerusalem, the same events in time as the destruction of the temple. It includes depictions of the golden menorah, which I'll cover in the next episode, other sacred objects being carried away in the recorded triumphal procession are the gold trumpets, the fire pans for removing the ashes from the altar, and the table of the bread of the presence, but not the ark. And while this is a bit shorter of an episode, it's still a good stopping point. Join me next week when I'll continue the history of the other artifacts found in the tabernacle. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week... Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.